and welcome to Shipping Shakespeare, where we talk about the various ships in Shakespeare plays that we love, hate, and are just kind of meh on. I'm Liz. And I'm Julia. This is the first podcast we've had a guest on, so we're pleased to welcome Jess. Hello. Today we are talking about Julius Caesar. Boo. Yay. (laughs) Death to tyrants. Boo and yay in equal measure, because we can totally tread a middle ground in a play about revolution. Absolutely. That's so easy. And maybe the moral of the whole play. Julia's going to start us off with a summary of the play, then we'll get into some key ideas, and then we'll dive right into the ships. Hopefully I can do this in 90 seconds or less. I'm timing you. That's hurtful. Caesar, maybe you've heard of him, has just returned to Rome after defeating his rival Pompey, and the people are all about it, because the people are sort of fickle like that. The Roman patricians, on the other hand, are a lot more nervous, including Brutus, Caesar's close friend, and honorable Roman TM. Approached by Cassius, lean and hungry Roman, Brutus acknowledges his unease that Caesar will crown himself king and become a tyrant. It takes Cassius and the conspirators, and I'm not listing their names because there are way too many of them, a little longer to convince Brutus, but eventually he comes around. There's also an epic rainstorm, and apparently all the omens, including a couple of lions chilling and having babies in the middle of the city streets. The following morning, on the infamous Ides of March, Caesar's wife, Calpurnia, tries to convince him to stay home. All the auguries are also bad news, so there's a lot of reasons for him not to go to the capital. But Caesar is easily manipulated and goes with the conspirators to the Senate, despite being warned by, like, five different people, including a soothsayer. Caesar, as you may remember from high school, gets stabbed. His favorite, Mark Antony, plays Brutus into letting him throw Caesar a funeral. Antony gets the crowd all riled up using that speech we all had to memorize, and chaos reigns. A poet literally gets torn to pieces. The conspirators flee. Also, Brutus's wife, Portia, kills herself offstage. Antony hooks up with Octavius, Caesar's nephew, and Lepidus, an old soldier, to form the new triumvirate. They march to war against the conspirators, meet at the Battle of Philippi and Brutus and Cassius both commit suicide to avoid being dragged through the streets of Rome in defeat. Brutus in actual defeat and Cassius in tragically misconstrued defeat because it's Shakespeare. And anyone who's interested in what happens next should probably read Antony and Cleopatra. You were under two minutes, so congratulations. So there's a lot going on in Caesar, and Liz, I think, is going to warm us up to some of the key ideas in the play. Julius Caesar the play is obviously deeply concerned with all kinds of issues on the political spectrum. This is one of, if not the only, Shakespeare play whose characters constantly think in terms of PR. Foremost among those issues is, of course, the question of tyranny. Everyone agrees that tyrants are bad. The disconnect comes when no one's entirely certain how to identify a tyrant before he gets out of control, which is a question that rings rather loudly in the present day. This issue only gets more complicated when it's married to duty. Is it Brutus's duty to stop Caesar no matter what? Or is it Brutus's duty to be true to his friend no matter what? Which calls louder, the personal or the political? These characters always answer to the political first, but since this is a tragedy, Shakespeare is certainly not condoning the idea of abandoning the self for a higher purpose. The one moment when all the mess could have been avoided is in fact Calpurnia's deeply personal entreaty to Caesar to stay home, which is ultimately defeated by Caesar's need to appear politically strong. One thing that comes through very clearly is that duty requires sacrifice. Brutus convinces himself that his best friend's death is a necessary evil. Cassius thinks that he can defeat Caesar without much cost to himself, and then his deep friendship with Brutus is nearly destroyed as a result. Brutus's wife Portia remains loyal to her husband's conspiracy against her better judgment and winds up committing suicide in despair. Even Antony, the shrewdest political manipulator in the play, can't comfortably share power with another Caesar. By the end of the play, he's clearly questioning his decision to let Octavius share his glory. As usual in Shakespeare, the most important relationships are those between friends, rather than between lovers, or at least 
textually explicit lovers. Brutus cares deeply about Caesar, but his friend has clearly grown remote enough that Brutus's real closest friend is Cassius, for whom he commits treason, murder, and ultimately suicide. On Cassius's side, his protestations of love for Brutus are some of his only speeches that an audience can actually believe. Lest we think that Caesar's so high and mighty that he can't maintain friendships, Antony is willing to send Rome into a tailspin of chaos and murder in order to avenge his death. It's hard to tell in this play whether politics or friendships shape the plot more. And finally, the play takes an unflinching look at how fast ideals die when dirty work is involved. Brutus enters the conspiracy to kill Caesar, determined to do the right thing, apart from, you know, the whole murder. This determination plunges him, and therefore the whole play, into a state of cognitive dissonance, which only clears up at the very end with Brutus's death. Brutus's high-minded insistence on idealism sets him up perfectly for Antony's masterful manipulation of the mob. He's blindsided by it because he believes Antony's assurances that he'll cooperate. Later in the play, Brutus and Cassius have a vicious argument over whether or not Cassius has been funding his army through theft, which ultimately resolves with Brutus's resigned agreement that Cassius can pretty much do whatever he wants. Even in Antony and Octavius's relationship, we can see that Antony is falling into the same trap he set for Brutus. He thinks he can dominate Octavius, and only realizes at the play's very end that he shouldn't have trusted him to begin with. There is no room for ideals in a revolution. We, the audience, know that at the beginning, but Brutus's slow, unwilling discovery of it is a major source of this play's tragedy and irony. I'm all ready to go see it now. Come for the porn and stay for the facts! That is now our official tagline. I think we have some pairings to talk about now. Let's do it. Canon ships and how we feel about them. The whopping two of them that we have. Again, this is not a play about romantic love. Very few of Shakespeare's plays are actually about that, but this definitely ain't one of them. The upside means that this play is bursting with slash pairings rather than canon ones, which is not kind of a refreshing switch. It's pretty great. I feel like Caesar is slashable with everybody just because he's so popular and Brutus is slashable with everybody because he's so tragic. (laughs) I would also throw in Antony as slashable with everyone. And Cassius, to be honest. But we're going to get there because we have to talk about the boring, heteronormative, borderline abusive pairings first. So let's talk about Brutus and Portia since they get more time than the other one. Ah, you want to start with a nice one? Doesn't surprise me. We only get to see Portia twice. Really? Because that is how concerned this play is with women. Which makes it all the more remarkable that she has the kind of impact that she does. She's an incredible character, actually. I was thinking about that because she has so few... I mean, Calpurnia has fewer lines than she does, to be fair. But Portia is barely on stage and you still remember her at the end of the play. So that is impressive in itself. And you get the sense that she is a force to be reckoned with, even though you don't spend that much actual time with her. I mean, Lady stabs herself in the leg to be like, hey, maybe you should listen to what I have to say. Portia, don't fuck around. (laughs) She does not. But she is Cato's daughter, so... There's clearly a really deep undercurrent of affection and respect between her and Brutus that's lately gotten just completely shut off, but she calls deliberately on it in that first scene. This is a partnership, I think is what we're supposed to understand, and his pulling away is abnormal, so she's calling attention to it. There's a line. Really, Liz? Is there? Act 2, scene 1, after I should not need if you were gentle Brutus, which is, oh god, one of my favorite gentle fuck you lines in all of Shakespeare. Her sequence of, I guess, small speeches or their exchange is what I actually ended up memorizing when we did this in high school. Am I yourself, but as it were in sort or limitation to keep with you at meals, comfort your bed, and talk to you sometimes? Dwell I but in the suburbs of your good pleasure? If it be no more, Portia is Brutus's harlot, not his wife. Yes. What she's 
throwing in his face is that she and he clearly believe that marriage should be more than what the actual conventional Roman society of the day would have thought it was. Yeah. And not even getting into the Elizabethan society. Yeah, that's too many layers. There's multiple layers of societal expectations that clearly Portia and Brutus's marriage have deliberately bucked in exchange for a real partnership and exchange of thoughts and affections. Our relationship is more than this kind of empty companionship that I'm supposed to provide you with. It's more than domesticity. It's more than sex. We really are supposed to confide in one another. And I'm your equal. Yes. The equality is important because, yeah, that wasn't true for the Romans or for the Elizabethans. For her to suggest that indicates even more how much of a badass she is. And kind of ups the tragic factor of the whole play by implying this fucking epic marriage that we really never see. No, no, you really only see the aftermath, and it makes it that much more sad how it ends. I was just thinking about Lady Macbeth and the fact that if they'd entered into murder together, perhaps they would have been more successful, if we're following Shakespearean tradition. It is always sort of a question for me how much Portia knows. The second scene we see her in seems to imply that Brutus makes good on his promise to tell her about it, because she is freaked the fuck out. She is, and she keeps talking about, like, Brutus's suit, what he's going to ask Caesar for, like, on the surface, but I think she knows exactly what that means. In the play we saw in Baltimore, they certainly played it as though she knew. The line right before that Brutus hath a suit, she says, Oh, Brutus, the heavens speed thee in thine enterprise. Sure, the boy heard me. Brutus hath a suit that Caesar will not grant. Yeah. As if she's trying to play it off in case her servant has heard her freaking out. That line has always felt like a cover to me. Like, I know what's really going on, but I really shouldn't let anyone else know. Yeah, and I've never been sure about that, but just rereading it, that seemed very clear to me that she does know and that their marriage isn't as broken as she's afraid, but is clearly about to be. Well, she's gotten into something much darker, right, than anything else that could be true. So if it was just a problem between the two of them, that's not so serious as what he's about to do, that she is, like, somewhat complicit in. And she can see all the possible ramifications of it, which he obviously can't. The Cato's daughter thing is significant on many levels, including that. She understands this world as well as, if not better, than he does. Amen. And hey, speaking of women we should listen to... God. Does that bring Calpurnia to your mind for some reason, Liz? I have no idea why, but just something makes me think, yeah, yeah, let's fucking talk about Caesar and Calpurnia. Oh my, uh, could you figure out the foundation for this relationship at all? Because that is something that always escapes me. My sense, historically at least, is that it was a politically expedient move, that a proper, upstanding Roman political figure needed a wife. That seems like a fair assessment, but like Shakespeare is obviously writing her as someone who cares for him, and fuck all if I know why. I feel like he writes all of the other characters as people who care about Caesar, like as a celebrity. The soothsayer and all of the people who are not conspirators seem to really adore him. Yeah, the public is pretty mad for him, but she has an intimate relationship with him. He is not great to her, and she still cares that he's probably going to die. It's probably hard to live with someone, to be married to someone, even if they treat you like shit and not care a little bit. 
It also threatens her standing. She doesn't really act that way in the play, but, I mean, much like Brutus's actions threaten Portia, Caesar's actions also have ramifications for Calpurnia. The challenge for me is we don't get very much more than her anxiety, and at the very beginning, her willingness to stand there and be humiliated. That's two moments we get between the two of them. Then maybe what we're seeing with Caesar and Calpurnia is exactly the kind of marriage that Brutus and Portia have refused to have. I like that. This is what a typical Roman marriage is, and for all that Caesar's practically divine, he's not capable of more than that with his wife, with whom ideally he should be most intimate. So this is another way that Shakespeare's fanboying um, Brutus. I think we know why he's not. There is kind of a gaping hole in the historical record in this play, and her name is Cleopatra. Which, again, it's going to come out, but considering the, like the text in front of us. Personally, I've always felt kind of cheated that we didn't get some, like, Calpurnia Cleo action. Cleo and anyone, right? Yeah. We can just say that up front, and eventually we will do Antony and Cleopatra, and we will talk about her so, so much more. Fucking love her. I love her historically. I love the Shakespearean Cleo. She's just the fucking best. Like Caesar wishes. It's funny. One of my main historical ships is actually Caesar and Cleopatra, but I don't ship Shakespeare's Caesar with Shakespeare's Cleo. Shakespeare's Caesar is not worthy of Cleopatra, especially of Shakespeare's Cleopatra. I mean, of any Cleopatra, but especially Shakespeare's Cleopatra. Historic Caesar and historic Cleo were a thing. Absolutely. Okay, good. I was like, I was pretty sure that was a thing, but I'm going to check. <laughs> they had a son and everything. So many versions of them, but yes, historically. These are, again, ships that are not present in the text. You are right. <laughs> Two canon ships, both of them kind of sad. And Caesar and Calpurnia are dysfunctional even before she had has those dreams, because as you mentioned, we see a very brief interaction with them in Act 1, Scene 2. Caesar is kind of talking over her head and is like, hey, Antony, while you're running naked through the streets hitting people with a stick, don't forget to hit my wife who can't have kids so that we can fix that. Yeah, that's basically the sum total of my sink the ship. <laughs> it's a little inconsiderate. Guys, if you're listening, don't air your lady's fertility problems to all of Rome. <laughs> it's very easy. Just keep your damn mouth shut. Keep it to yourself. Brutus and Portia don't apparently have any kids. You don't see him complaining about it. No, but I feel like there's reasons for that. Namely that he's banging his brother-in-law? Banging a few people. So those are the ships. This is not a romantic play. It's not trying to be a romantic play, to be fair. Women play a very small role. And if they did, then arguably many of the things that happen would not happen. Calpurnia and Portia are the only people in the entire play who try and drag the course of the plot away from tragedy and murder. Yeah, they're the only ones saying, maybe let's not do this. And they go roundly ignored. Yeah, so listen to the women, but we're also just going to talk about the slash because it is tragic and epic. Oh, so very. Do we all have the same major OTP for this play? Because if we don't, I might cry. It's pretty clear that it's Brutus and Cassius, right? Obviously! Okay, good, we are all on the same page. I was like, how could it not be that one? <laughs> Did we all have the same moment of, is one of our friends not our friend? Am I going to have to stab one of you? I was just going to be really upset if we couldn't all squee over Brassius together. Yeah, I feel like that's going to be the majority of what we talk about. Actually, this time and next time, because it's a complicated pairing, and I love it to pieces. It is probably one of my favorite Shakespeare pairings, I'm not gonna lie. It's got absolutely everything. It's got affection, torturous emotional complications, breakups, reconciliations, tragic farewells. It has the best lover spat.
bad in all of Shakespeare, and I will fight people. I'm going to give you that one, because Benedict and Beatrice are the only ones who could rival it, and they get their quarreling out of the way before any official love declarations. Honestly, it is the best argument between two people in love with each other that I have seen in any play. And seeing it, too, is just magnificent. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the staging. (laughs) At least in the one truly revelatory production of it that I saw, you knew going in that what they were fighting about was not actually what they were saying they were fighting about. The entire argument was all subtext, and they just couldn't bring themselves to actually speak the words. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It's got everything! Including a sexy villain! Cassius is our first official inductee into what I call the Sexy Villains Club. There are not many in Shakespeare. It's an elite group, but Cassius is one of them. Bow chicka wow wow. So we will reveal the others as they come up, but I mean, dude gets the best lines, first of all. He does have good lines. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves? Like, holy shit! Dude can talk! That's why he's where he is in life. It is, though. You're right. Because he starts off his entire project of suborning Brutus by appealing to Brutus's affection for him. I have not from your eyes that gentleness and show of love as I was wont to have. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, this is a long-standing relationship. It doesn't start when they start to plan Caesar's murder. It already existed. He says he's going to be Brutus's glass, like his mirror. He's going to tell him why he's the best. What? It's just beautiful. And he knows Brutus so well. He knows exactly the buttons to push in order to get Brutus on his side. And he knows exactly what to stay away from so as not to push Brutus away. He says, you know, if my like weak words have moved you, like, I don't think he says anything funnier in the whole play. <laughs> yeah, they're weak words, Cassius. Mm-hmm. I've always read that line as him having to make lemonade out of lemons, because Brutus has literally just told him, I hear you, now shut the fuck up. Yeah. I've always just read that as Cassius being like, cool, bro. <laughs> not really trying to force you in anything here, and God knows I'm not that persuasive. <laughs> Liar. All the lulls. Cassius is a lying liar who lies. Which, you know, is why he's appealing. He's more than that. Absolutely. But that's a key part of his character. Yeah, the manipulation. Who else could get this group of people to commit to an atrocity like this? He's outdone by Antony. (sighs) Yeah. But he's number two in the play. Antony, like, it's of the moment, I would argue. Cassius, it's his whole life. It's true. Antony's very improv. Cassius... Is a planner. I will fight you guys on that one. Uh, Antony also ends up dead later, so... <laughs> I'm not saying Antony's infallible. Spoilers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you can't spoil events that happened thousands of years ago. But there's also the balance of personalities, I think, to talk about. Cassius is very clearly the idea man who needs Brutus's approval. Brutus is the idealist. Cassius is like clearly the cynic. Which makes it ironic that Brutus is so easily able to take over. Because as soon as Brutus gets on board, everyone starts deferring to him. He makes the final calls. And Cassius has done all the work of building up the coalition. But Brutus gets final say. Well, yeah, because Brutus is the appropriate figurehead. There's no reason for anyone to trust Cassius except for Brutus, which is sort of delightful about them to me, that they need each other so much to make this work. Murder keeps couples together, you guys. That's what we learn from Shakespeare. I mean, you'll probably both die brutally by the end of the play, but you will not split up. You'll have a good run. Your love will be true. Some runs better than others. (laughs) And can we talk for a second about that goodbye? No, I want to talk about the tent first. I'm sorry. (laughs) Please do. 
Act 4, Scene 3, once the armies have amassed, Brutus and Cassius have been apart for a while. They return together, and they are not currently friends, which is so sad. It really is the best lover's quarrel in all of Shakespeare, because it is full of stuff like, I can't bear this, and don't you love me, and it's gorgeous and terrible and awesome. Usually when you get big epic breakup scenes like this in Shakespeare, it sticks. Yeah, but in this case, it doesn't. They come back together, and they do it in a really realistic way. They just argue each other to a standstill, and they get all of their shouting out of the way, and then they're just both kind of too exhausted to keep going, and the love is still there. Cassius notably has his, why don't you just stab me if you hate me so much moment. Yeah, he does kind of up the ante. It's very dramatic. I was thinking about this in terms of Portia, and I was like, Brutus just goes for really dramatic people. That's that's all it has to be. That's his kink. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't encourage your lovers to stab themselves so much, and they would live longer. Just get a nice little sex dungeon and get it out that way. <laughs> However you want to do it in a safe way with consenting adults. Now I'm just picturing Brutus and Cassius with, like, whips and black leather, and it's not helping. Well, it's fitting. It really is. And then you get lines like, I cannot drink too much of Brutus's love. The innuendo is just begging to be made. At this point, I don't even know if it's subtext. Like, I might just argue that Shakespeare ships it. With Brutus having just told Cassius about Portia's death, they're literally all that they have left in the world of emotional connection. Yeah, can we talk about that, by the way? Because Cassius is more broken up in that particular moment than Brutus is. It's weird, but the thing to remember, which I hadn't thought of until I saw this one production, is that Brutus has been living with this knowledge. That's true. And I know he's a stoic and that's like his whole thing, but Cash is the keeper of Brutus's feelings and that seems extremely relevant in that particular moment. True that. Oh no, is Cassius the bottom? <laughs> I think they switch. Aww. We don't usually sign roles, but yeah, probably. That's adorable and tragic. <laughs> I feel like they alternate. Given Roman Moore's about bottoming, I think they probably have to shake it up. Oh, I'm sure. That's the best kind of pairing, really. But, you know, some people have preferences. But yeah, Cassius is definitely the emotional steward of the two of them, which should be surprising considering their roles in the revolution, but in their particular relationship, makes sense. I think Cassius is the patron saint of topping from the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) You just have to make the right argument, right? If Brutus ever gets uncomfortable, Cassius is just like, well, fine, why don't you just fucking kill me then? And Brutus is like, okay, I'm sorry. Sorry, don't be mad. Please, can we keep going? They're so cute. So there's a moment when they get interrupted towards the end of their argument. Like, a poet comes in to yell at them. It's almost never on stage, by the way. But yeah, this guy comes in to yell at them and be like, you shouldn't fight, you should be friends. And in my head, they are always making out when that happens. Yes! Headcanon accepted! Because they've literally just made up. And, like, how better to make up than with a good makeout session? And they're both weirdly amused by the interruption. Obviously, you could play it as them being more annoyed, but honestly, they both just are like, lol, who's this guy? And then Brutus is like, no, but really, get the fuck out. I really need to bone this dude right now, because this might be our last chance. (laughs) Oh, sad face. A little tragic. But yeah, that goodbye then. I think this is a more heartbreaking farewell than Romeo and Juliet get. 
I might need to just lie on the floor for a second. <laughs> I do not say this and mean that I'm not broken the fuck up when Romeo and Juliet say goodbye. There's like a fuck ton of foreshadowing and it's really agonizing. And if they're done well, it's just even worse. But they believe, for all the foreshadowing and the prophetic visions, that they'll be reunited. Cassius and Brutus say goodbye in the full knowledge that they probably won't be. It's a pretty beautiful goodbye. First, they talk about what they're going to do if they lose, which they're Romans, so they're going to stab themselves. Spoilers. But then Brutus says, if we do meet again, why we shall smile. If not, why then this parting was well made. And they echo that forever and forever farewell to each other. And my god, these are grown-ass men, finally both in full awareness of where their paths have led them, knowing that they will probably never see again the only person left on Earth with whom they have a real meaningful emotional connection. I'm having a hard time thinking of other Shakespearean characters who even get to make this kind of farewell in that kind of knowledge. I mean, given the nature of most of the tragedies, I suppose it makes sense that a lot of people don't get this moment, but yeah. The fact that they're so deliberate about it and that they do understand and that they are still so connected to each other because that's the other thing that happens. Like People are distanced by the choices that they make and what they've done for one another or because of one another. But Brutus and Cassius don't do that. They're as devoted to each other when they leave, if not more so than they are at the beginning of the play when they decide to do what they're going to do. What they've been through has brought them even closer together. They need each other at the end in a way that they didn't need each other at the beginning. So it just breaks my heart all the more when Brutus learns later that Cassius is dead. He says he's going to find time to mourn him. And we all know, and I think Brutus knows too, that he won't. But they've also already said goodbye. The last of all the Romans, fare thee well. It is impossible that ever Rome should breed thy fellow. And it's funny because we know, the audience, that Cassius is not the paragon that Brutus thinks he is. But it doesn't even matter for us in that moment because what we're seeing is the confirmation of that goodbye. And it's true emotionally for Brutus, so it doesn't have to be true for us to be true for him. I think one of the reasons I end up loving Cassius so much is because of Brutus. Oh, absolutely. Oh my god. I mean, I love Cassius anyway because I love me a villain, but because Brutus loves him so much, and because Cassius loves him so much back, it's just impossible to pull that apart and say, this is the bad guy, we shouldn't sympathize with him. Right, because like if you take, say, Iago and Amelia, Amelia is clearly willing to go to great lengths for Iago, who couldn't give less of a fuck about her. Yeah, it's, it's totally unearned. Which makes him much less sympathetic than Cassius, who obviously gives all of the fucks about Brutus. We will definitely get into this, like, why this makes this pairing problematic next time. But Cassius goes against things that he believes are important and true, because Brutus doesn't want them. I mean, notably killing Antony, but also the decision that they make at the battlefield. Cassius defers to Brutus, and Arguably, he shouldn't. Neither time. Especially not the second time, when Brutus's instincts have clearly been faulty. Honestly, he should question him. We talk about fatal flaws in Shakespeare, and Shakespeare actually uses them when the Greeks don't, but we don't need to get into that. Brutus's fatal flaws are all like tied up with his feelings of honor and what he thinks about himself and Rome, but Cassius's fatal flaw really is that he loves Brutus too much. God damn it, the feels! <laughs> Do you want to talk about how, like, Brutus and Cassius would have been perceived prior to this play? That's a fair point. Like I said, Shakespeare ships it. Yeah, like, he's clearly a fanboy of these two characters, because you wouldn't have written this play if you weren't. And given them these amazing lines. It's called Julius Caesar, but the play is about Brutus and Cassius. When I read it the first time, I was like, but why is this play called Julius Caesar? <laughs> a debate that continues in uh, <laughs> high school English classes. All he does is get stabbed. <laughs> 
prior to this play, The Inferno is probably the most well-known piece of fiction that would feature Brutus and Cassius. And in that, they are in Satan's mouth as, like, the worst people in hell next to Judas. <laughs> so, this is quite a re-envisioning of the characters. The historical sources that Shakespeare was drawing from would not have agreed on Brutus and Cassius. It would have been an extended debate on how we should interpret them. And what's fascinating is that the play doesn't settle this at all, right? Like, people still have issues in terms of staging and acting. Like, how are we going to present these people? Is Caesar sympathetic? Are Brutus and Cassius more sympathetic? Is Brutus kind of a dupe for listening to Cassius? It ends up falling into, like, whatever statement that the director and the actors want to make. Ultimately, what Shakespeare does is complicate the lines of good and evil. Everybody in this play has a fairly valid perspective, I would argue. Like, Brutus, Cassius, and Caesar all present reasonable perspectives. <laughs> Nobody is solidly evil and solidly good. The sources that Shakespeare was drawing on would have been writing at times when it would have been dangerous to approve too openly of the assassin of the original Caesar, but the authors themselves might well have had suppressed Republican impulses. Indeed. Even at the time, talking about Brutus and Cassius would have been a political minefield. It still is. I mean, it's it's absolutely one of the most politically savvy plays. Shakespeare doesn't really ever write unpolitical plays. No, there's politics in Romeo and Juliet. But especially with the plays that draw deliberately from history, like this one, even though it's not what we would class as a history play, it drives the entire plot. The characters cannot step back from the political considerations because they shape their world in really meaningful ways. And in a time of monarchs, right, you're not going to make a strong statement against tyrants, but this is probably the most anti-authoritarian play that I can think of that he wrote. The only other one I'm coming up with is Richard II, and Richard II is similarly complicated. Very much so, in the treatment of his personhood in particular. I would argue Richard actually gets more character development in many ways than Caesar does. Absolutely, I think that's undeniable. <laughs> okay, good. But I think the political statement that Shakespeare is making about revolution and regicide is strikingly similar in Richard and in Caesar. To me, what ends up making this a tragedy is the kind of the level of discomfort that you have as the audience at the end. So a lot of what the histories aim to do is to make the English feel settled in terms of who's in power, ultimately. So like at the end of Richard III, you're supposed to feel like everything turned out the way it was supposed to. <laughs> God. The goal of the history plays is to create a false sense of security in the current government. They're propaganda. This is what we all came through to get here. Isn't it great to be here? Right. And strikingly, this is not propaganda. This is a complicated discussion of tyranny and friendship and all the stuff that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And we don't get any comfortable answers at the end. And it gets even more uncomfortable when we move into Antony and Cleopatra. No pat conclusions anywhere. And I'm thinking, too, about Jess, about your point that this is a departure in terms of the depiction of Brutus and Cassius. Shakespeare gets a lot of shit for just stealing plots wholesale. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is one of the places where we can most clearly see his brain at work and get a sense into the kind of person that he was. That he could take people who were right next to Judas in hell and be capable of imagining them as complicated and sympathetic people and not just straight up mime villains. 
that actually raises a point for me. There are a lot of intimate moments in this play, which is part of what makes it so freaking slashy and why I love it. But for a political play, we're not talking about a lot of interactions with political structures. A lot of this is happening one-on-one between people. And the assassination itself is one of the most intimate moments in the entire play. The personal is political. Always. Obviously. I think that's the thing Brutus fails to understand. They gotta be in the room where it happens. <laughs> oh, no. Is that copyrighted? <laughs> yes. Oh, man. This seems as good a time as any to move on to either Caesar and Antony or Caesar and Brutus, or both at the same time if you want to try to juggle them. Yes. Let's just talk about Caesar now. Yeah, and all the people that he's probably slept with. I mean, he's Caesar. He obviously slept with everyone. It would be really interesting to have a director go for that and then just play all of this anger and jealousy against Caesar as, well, he's not sleeping with me anymore. There's so many jilted lovers in this play. What if the conspirators are all jilted lovers and then they figure it out together and they're like, he's gotta go. (laughs) Julius Caesar must die. (laughs) Exactly. It's a new play. (laughs) I'd watch it. At the very least, Caesar and Brutus is a thing. Yeah. Something that's readily acknowledged by both of them. Oh, yeah. And by Antony, actually. Antony brings it up a few times and throws it in Brutus's face. You were friends. How could you do this to your friends? You loved him. Not only were you friends. He says Brutus was Caesar's angel, right? You more than friends. I don't think they had angels in Rome. Shakespeare's a Christian. We're going to leave it alone. Hashtag anachronism. Lots of anachronism. This play is full of clocks, all right? Like, come on. This play is the play that my English teacher used to teach us the word anachronism. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, we get the word angel from Latin. That doesn't mean much. There were monks for a long time. Regardless, Antony makes the point that Brutus and Caesar were extremely close before Brutus decided to stab him. There's a reason he says A2 Brutus and not A2 Cassius. He's not surprised about Cassius at all. In fact, if there's an argument that I'm going to make for people not sleeping together in the play, it's Caesar and Cassius. Yeah, no, Caesar comes right out and says that he doesn't like how Cassius looks. No, no, no. None of these skinny dudes that spend all night thinking, no, that's not my type. Caesar's all about that base. (laughs) The last thing that Caesar says before the attack, when they're all falling to their knees begging for this random walk-on to come back to Rome, Decius gets on his knees and Caesar just looks at him and says, doth not Brutus bootless kneel? Like, if he can't persuade me, what the fuck do you think you'll be able to do? He's the one I like. None of you have hope. And he's shocked when Brutus does kneel. Well before Brutus stabs him, he's like, why are you here doing this? This doesn't make any sense. This isn't like you. It takes Brutus some really lovely, agonized speeches to turn against Caesar in the first place. He doesn't have anything to complain about. Oh yeah. Caesar has always been a good friend to him. They've always gotten along. All he's afraid of is what ambition and power will do to Caesar. He deliberately says he's not worried about who Caesar is now. He's only worried about what he'll become. We see the ways in which Caesar is fallible and mortal, because of course he is, and the ways in which he clearly does want power. But yeah, Brutus's concerns are political, but the reason he waits is entirely personal. And then later he says, I slew my best lover for the good of Rome. That's a line. That's a line. Oh, God, this play. (laughs) This is the only play I can think of where the word lover is used interchangeably with the word friend often. I don't think that's an accident. 
Not at all. Shakespeare gets a pass because he's writing about the Romans, so it's fine. Everybody knows they were having lots of orgies. It's fine. Julia, you mentioned a wonderful slant to Caesar Brutus in Caesar Antony. (laughs) Caesar is clearly taking up with this younger, hotter model now. I have another quote for that, actually. Of course you do. Julia came prepared. Julia did come prepared. This is one of her favorite plays. I lack the quick spirit. That is an Antony. (gasps) Oh, Brutus! That's code. I don't know how else you call someone a slut in Rome. It's better than that, even, because I'm going to drag in the sonnets. Do it. One of the sonnets starts off the expensive spirit in a waste of shame, and then proceeds to run down about 12 lines of synonyms for awful. Oh, it's quick one of them? It's not. The keyword is spirit, because waste is written W-A-S-T-E, but it's a homonym, y'all, and what else could spirit be expended in a waste of shame? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think we know. I learned this in college! Yeah. Actual PhDs spend time dissecting the language to figure out that Shakespeare is talking about ejaculating in an embarrassing person. That does seem pretty obvious. (laughs) Yes. So when Brutus says he doesn't have Antony's quick spirit, I think we are absolutely free to interpret that as filthily as we want. He's just not up for as many rounds as certain younger people are, and that's okay. It's not okay. He's been thrown over for a younger person. His feelings are deeply hurt. You have Cassius, and you need to focus on what really matters. This is Brutus's problem, among many others. Even having been thrown over for the hot kid, he still doesn't think of that as a reason to turn against Caesar. He still says, I know no personal cause to spurn at him. He cares so much. He does care, but I would say his feelings still play a significant role, whether he knows it or not. Sounds like he takes it in stride. I don't know. Well, he is a stoic, as noted. It's kind of their whole thing. Yes, that's his deal. He might just think it's not worth getting worked up over. That doesn't mean you don't feel things, Brutus. Seriously. Just, you know, go talk about it with Cassius and then, like, get your freak on. You'll feel so much better. Talk about it, air quotes. Yeah, obviously. She said talk about it and then get your freak on. You know, you can do both. Okay, so are we ready for Caesar Antony? My body is so ready for Caesar Antony. Endless quotes on this one, right? Antony is madly in love with Caesar. As you pointed out, he basically is ready to burn down Rome for his boyfriend. Let slip the dogs of war. If you say that when your significant other is dying, that's serious stuff right there. The worst part about this is, like, everybody seems fully aware of this relationship, but Brutus is still like, no, no, it'll be fine if he talks to the crowd. Antony will be cool. He gets it. Yeah, he gets it all right. Jesus. What is wrong with you? The best staging of this that I've ever seen cast a surprisingly not attractive guy as Antony. He was kind of large, not that handsome, not super young. And I remember being shocked when I first saw him come on stage. Like, that's supposed to be Antony? And it worked like a charm because the audience underestimated him just like Brutus did. Oh, that makes so. The one we went to recently in Baltimore was gender swapped Antony, which is one of my favorite Antonys that I've ever seen. Fuck yes! There were a few women interspersed throughout the play. Casca was a woman, maybe Cicero. Conspirators were kind of half and half. But like Antony was the moment, the fact that it was Antonia. That's brilliant. 
And they clearly underestimated her for that reason. Just the like expressive level of emotion and vitriol was amazing. That's fucking glorious. Oh my god. I think to make Brutus's choice and everyone else's going along with it to spare Antony and let him speak believable, the production really has to go to some length to make you see at least why they would be doing that, if not be right there with them. Right. If you're presented with a young, handsome, charismatic Antony with like nothing thrown in there to hint at why the fuck Brutus would leave this person alive, it's not going to be a surprise that he's able to turn the entire city against them. You're just gonna be like, yep, counting down the minutes. Oh, yep, he's talking. It's gonna be any time now. We're all ready. Except for you, Brutus, because you also left, which was the dumbest thing you could have done. You could totally play it that way because everybody else in the play is like, we really should not leave Antony alive. (laughs) It really depends what you want out of your Brutus, I think. The most common iteration I've seen is we experience Antony as a dumb jock. Well, because up to that point, yeah. He's physically gifted. He's pretty. Caesar loves him. Caesar's definitely doing him, but he's not brilliant. That, to me, makes a certain amount of sense, but I love the idea of Antony being underestimated for other reasons. I would think that they would be underestimating him, even just because of his age. Like, he's so much younger than they are. They don't see, like, his potential, and then when Caesar dies, he's like, fuck it, I'm throwing everything I've got. <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah, well, Cassius doesn't underestimate him, to be fair, Team Cassius. The weird thing is that, historically, Antony was their contemporary. Antony was pretty much of an age with Brutus, if I'm recalling correctly, and had absolutely made his name A, as a party boy, but B, as an extremely gifted general. Oh, that reminds me, that's another quote from Caesar this time. Antony that revels longer nights is notwithstanding up. Oh, yeah, they're doing it all the ways. (laughs) Got about a dozen of these, so. I had not put that together with that quote. That's amazing. having a lot of fun reading this one. Just this slash seemed really obvious to me for once. Sometimes you have to reach a little, which I'm fine with. That is what fandom is. But it's a little, like, wonderfully metatextual to be, like, thinking about fic for something that is basically fic itself. Yeah, God, it's just layer on layer there. It's funny the range of ages that you get, because you do get a lot of crusty old versions. It's an interesting thing to play with, yeah, how old you want to cast them. Yeah, and how old is your Caesar? Is he physically impressive? Is he not? What does it mean that he isn't? There's so much you can do visually, even though otherwise visually it's a relatively simplistic play. Historically, Brutus died when he was 43. Yeah, but I don't think I've ever seen, on the stage at least, a Brutus cast who plays him 43, or even in the area. The one that we saw was reasonably middle-aged. But then Rome middle-aged versus our middle-aged, and the fact that these are all battle-worn guys. Well, that's true. Including Caesar, actually. Very much so. That's kind of his whole deal. The RSC cast Brutus as, like, established but young, and Cassius is kind of, like, slightly older than that, and Antony as older than that. Again, added to their underestimation of Antony that, like, he's been around this long and hasn't made more of himself. Just not very impressive. Well, there's no doubt that Antony loves Caesar, right? Like, it's not a question. Even though everything that you get during the speeches and his political manipulations are manipulations, I don't think that makes it not genuine. Antony does go to the capital to meet the conspirators, understanding that he might die. And he's totally fine with that. (sighs) Feels. 
So that's that's real. No one doubts his courage. <laughs> no, it's not just courage, though. He goes willing to die for Caesar. He says, even if I live a thousand years, I shall not find myself so apt to die. God. I'm not saying that he lacks courage or anything. I'm just There's a level of desperation and heartbreak that leads him there, that he would accept the fact that they might also murder him. And they should have, but again, <laughs> not getting into it. It's still a bold move. I mean, he walks right up there. <laughs> He's willing to die next to Caesar. The realest glimpse into Antony's feelings for Caesar doesn't come through that funeral oration. It comes after the conspirators leave him with Caesar's body. Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth that I am meek and gentle with these butchers. Mm -hmm. The second he can actually be alone with his grief, it's overwhelming. It's consuming. To me, that's how we know, again, even though he's making a speech in the next scene, it's coming from a very real place. Antony is a politician, and he is way more cunning than anyone gives him credit for, but his heart is also completely broken at this point. We get three different characters, each with one moment completely alone where we see the truth of their souls. This is Antony's. We get Brutus's, I think, at the top of Act 2 trying to rationalize his way into killing Caesar, which is how we know that he sees this purely as a matter of honor. And then at the end of Act 1, Scene 2, we get Cassius on stage by himself, where we see that his motives are not nearly so noble, and that he knows he has some further manipulation of Brutus to do to get him on his side. Although it's not quite an Iago speech. No, it's absolutely not. But if Cassius went further in that direction, away from the true feelings he has for Brutus, it would absolutely be an Iago moment. Oh, 100%. His feelings for Brutus are what redeem him in our eyes, but he's absolutely got the manipulative strain that all of Shakespeare's best villains have. That is what makes them great. But those moments are so carefully spaced out. We don't get the Antony reveal until halfway through the play. Only at the midpoint do we really understand who we're dealing with in Antony. Yeah, to go back to the idea of intimacy, like there aren't a lot of intimate moments just between the audience and a character. We're looking into intimate moments between people. Moments in which, despite the intimacy, there's almost always something that they have to perform. This is the reason that this is the play that we talk about when we talk about rhetoric. And speaking of rhetoric, shall we take a look at that speech? Because this is just masterful. It's art. Even reading it, knowing what's coming, you get worked up because of those leading rhetorical lines. Yes. The repetition of Brutus is an honorable man, interspersed with Antony's direct refutation of that claim, whether or not it's true. And then, oh, no, 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 but really, guys. The best Antony's to me say it differently each time. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. He just lets loose at such carefully choreographed moments with emotion, which we know is real emotion, but which is also clearly being performed. Oh, yeah. And then the crowd is just like, oh my god, oh my god, he's gonna cry. Holy shit, everyone be quiet. What the hell is he gonna say now? And at that point, he's got them. They know there's something going on that they haven't been told. And it's worth pointing out, Brutus's speech that he gives is a rhetorically perfect speech. Well, it's very rational. In terms of what was expected of speech making for the day and what's written about it by the Romans, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. And it fails. Yeah, Mark Antony invents modern politics. Yeah, because it is so technically perfect, but absent of passion. And I think it's not an accident that that is written in prose, whereas Antony's is written in poetry. Oh yeah, Shakespeare fully understands this. He sees what's lacking in Brutus. He knows how Antony wins them over. Antony at some point says he's not 
well spoken, which lols. He just says what he means. I'm just telling you my feelings. I'm not as good at this as Brutus. I'm not as good at this political correctness. I might say the wrong things, but it's what I really mean. I'm just a plain spoken man. Like you. (laughs) How many times have you heard that? I'm just like you. I come not, friends, to steal away your hearts. I am no orator, as Brutus is. (laughs) Yes. I'm not a real politician. I didn't go to Harvard, you guys. He keeps juxtaposing himself and Brutus, too. These are their choices. They can side with him or with Brutus. He clearly understands who the figurehead is meant to be, too. He brings up Cassius very little, and when he does, it's always in the context of Brutus. He knows who his opposition is, but I would argue he knew that before, because... (laughs) Rivals. Clearly stole Caesar away from Brutus. And the sad thing is that Brutus doesn't know who his opposition is. Brutus thinks that this is done. Brutus is really lucky that he's pretty, because holy shit, you guys, could you be more naive? Too noble to live. So honorable. And so nobly born. That's the other part they allude to, they never really dive into in depth, that Brutus's killing of Caesar is invoked by Cassius and taken on by Brutus himself as a deliberate response to Lucius Junius Brutus driving out the Tarquins. So Brutus has some very big shoes to fill, and he is desperately aware of it. It's true, but he also wants things both ways. Anyway, it's a rant for next time. I can't take it anymore. Let's go into rowboats. Not that they're much happier. They could be, because my rowboat is Calportia. Which I've decided to subtitle, fuck these idiots, let's get out of here. You're not wrong. So, Cal Portia, let's go. Portia and Calpurnia obviously both have their heads on straight. <laughs> straight. <laughs> and are obviously not being paid the attention and respect that they deserve. So clearly what they should do is get together, leave all the guys to destroy each other, and go off and be great somewhere else. They can go hang with Cleopatra. None of them have to be part of this. Portia, who already knows what a good marriage is like, can help teach Calpurnia what she's been missing. They can just have a happy life together away from all this insanity. I love the idea of Portia taking better care of Calpurnia than Caesar does. Girl needs it. And I get the sense that Portia kind of needs to take care of someone. She tries. So yeah, why not Calpurnia? Calpurnia would reward those efforts much more than Brutus does. And any time either of them said I had a bad feeling about this, they would listen to each other. Lock the doors, close the windows, stay home, and eat haagen all day. That sounds pretty perfect. They deserve so much better than they're given. The women in this play get the shortest shift. That's the one and only happy ship I can think of for this play. Let's move on to the tragedy. No, that's an excellent fix-it, and it's my new headcanon, so we're good. So obviously you can ship any conspirator with any other conspirator. Yeah, during the thunderstorm, they all were waiting for Cassius in like that one spot, and how long can you wait before you just start getting all Roman about it? It's a conspirator orgy, and I am not accepting other answers. Can we make note how into that thunderstorm Cassius is, by the way? Like, dude is ready to go. Yeah, he's half naked. Soaking wet. Give me all the omens. I'm getting off on nature. I'm relatively certain Cassius has slept with all of the conspirators, and I am 100% certain that all of them want to sleep with Brutus. But will they share? See, that's the tough thing. I really think it is a Brutus and Cassius thing. I feel like Brutus would be like, you go do what you want, Cassius, but Cassius would be like, you touch him and you will all die. (laughs) Headcanon accepted. Casca really ships the OT3. He's trying, man. I mean, it's honestly just that Casca's such a sourpuss. If Brutus is like, why is this guy so unfriendly? (laughs) Like, 
That's a sign. Maybe hating everyone is not the best way to get into their pants, Casca. Probably not. Casca's obviously super into the fact that he gets this private thunderstorm conversation with Cassius, but dude, it's not going anywhere. He's not getting off on you and nature. At most, it is nature and Brutus. That's the extent of it. He's getting fucking drenched right now, and then he's gonna go and manipulate his best friend slash lover, and it's just doing it for Cassius, and Casca doesn't figure anywhere. It's just a good night for him. So is this a rowboat or not? I like the conspirator orgy. Yeah, that's like a party boat, though. <laughs> <It's> a party <laughs> boat. The HMS conspirator orgy. Cassius Titanius? Yeah. That's a sad one. Very Romeo and Juliet. So at the end, Cassius thinks they've lost. He thinks Titanius, his friend, has been captured, so he kills himself. And Titanius has not really been captured, and when he sees Cassius' body, he also kills himself. <laughs> I can only assume they do this so that they can be together forever in eternity. Titinius's last lines both confirm Brutus Cassius and Cassius Titinius. Take this garland on thy brow. Thy Brutus bid me give it thee. Thy Brutus. And I will do his bidding. Brutus, come apace and see how I regarded Caius Cassius. <gasps> Dead. <gasps> I stabbed myself for your boyfriend. <laughs> I loved him more than you. I killed myself for him first. <laughs> first? Before you even knew. Brutus is like, man, didn't know this was a competition. And to up the Romeo and Juliet factor, which you're absolutely right about, Jess, he does it with Cassius's sword. Ah, I really like the phrase, the Romeo and Juliet factor. <laughs> like to keep that as a thing. Is Titanius even in the rest of the play? I think he's an Act 5 only character, which is a shame, because this is some good stuff. Not sure what exactly the relationship was, because we only see the end of it. <gasps> oh, I got it! They started up their thing on campaign when Brutus and Cassius were commanding different armies. Oh. Ooh, and they were fighting. Yes. yes! Cassius needed consolation, and there was Titinius, and then Brutus and Cassius got back together, and poor Titinius was like, okay, fine. Cassius has needs, okay. He does. There's nothing wrong with that. Brutus, again, is an unhealthy stoic. And Brutus is totally fine with an open relationship, even if Cassius is totally not. That is a solid robo. In equal tragedy, at the beginning of the play, I have Flavius and Marilus, the tribunes who are telling the common people to get the fuck back to work, pulling all the decorations off the statues, getting harassed by those common people. Getting real sassed. Flavius and Marillus are the Bernie bros of Rome. How have you forgotten about Pompey already? And they're like, who's that? Maybe you don't know how mobs work. <laughs> they clearly did not. Also, they die immediately, but I assume that they were in it together till the end. They died immediately? It's just an offhand mention that they've been put to silence. Why? Because they took off the decorations from Caesar's statues. Dang, I did not catch that before. There are reasons to be skeptical of Caesar. They're kind of sprinkled throughout the play, and because we're getting it through the filter of the conspirators, we're reasonably skeptical, but this isn't an authoritarian setup. Like, he's not going to be lenient. The very first scene of this play is introducing us to the fickleness of the Roman mob. They just like victory. They don't care who's doing it. Never trust the people. These two seem on the same page and clearly willing to risk death together. So yeah, I think that's a solid rowboat. I mean, it's a sad one and very, very small and short. They didn't get very far. Briefly lived, sinks quickly, but it's real. They burned brightly. They did. They were in it together and then died together. Julia, I think you had Antony Octavius as a rowboat, which I 100% ship. Oh my goodness, yes. Is that even a rowboat or is it like a yacht? We get one real scene of the two of them interacting and then like two little teeny snippets of other scenes. 
I think it counts as a decently sized rowboat, but still a rowboat. It's not going to sink right away. It will sink in the next play. Although, I will say on that note, Octavius gets the best foreshadowing. He says to Antony, I do not cross you, but I will do so. The intentions are very clear. But no, obviously they're in this together. Octavius is not mourning Caesar nearly as much as Antony is. Obviously, we don't get to see him as much, but I think that's true anyway. We're meant to read Octavius as very young, but very cold. And Antony is trying to like control this kid and assert himself as the more experienced voice and it's not going well at all which I thoroughly enjoy. In the one scene of them and Lepidus where as per usual Lepidus gets shuffled off stage because why would you spend any time on him? Antony says is it fit the threefold world divided he should stand one of the three to share it and Octavius looks at Antony and says so you thought him? <laughs> Octavius is pushing against Antony right from the beginning, and Antony's just kind of not picking up what Octavius is laying down. I do see them as a pairing. I mean, they've joined together to defeat the people who killed Caesar, so there's obviously some bond there. It may be politically expedient, but that doesn't mean they're not banging. It's Shakespeare. That never means they're not banging. (laughs) And let's be real here. Antony being dominant and Octavius reading from the Cassius manual of topping from the bottom is really fucking hot. Cassius and Antony get similar lines about being the more experienced soldier. It's not even subtext. (laughs) It really is just text. Brutus and Antony are each the obvious leader of their enterprises, whereas Cassius is mostly content to let Brutus be the actual leader as well as the figurehead. Octavius is not happy with this. Oh, he is very much no bro. Like, this is my party. Which one of us actually has the name Caesar? I'm pretty sure it was me. You can calm the fuck down. (laughs) It's a cold robot, but it is a robot. You can ship Caesar with so many people in this play. Decius Brutus, he's the one who's all like... I've got Caesar's ear. I can make him listen to me. Maybe Decius is the one that Caesar calls when Antony is busy. It's just a full docket of people, right? It's true. I don't think it's real, but I think Artemidorus ships himself with Caesar. Oh, yeah, he does. (laughs) Artemidorus tries to warn Caesar right before the conspirators make their suit and fails epically. Not only does he have all the names of the conspirators down, but he signs the letter, Thy Lover. Oh my gosh. He ships it. Caesar does not. My teacher had to to explain to us that lover was used interchangeably with friend. Is it? It is, but like in the French sense where you say friend and you mean lover. <laughs> and then I think we have a couple of crack pairings to round this out because we have a fleet of rowboats. It's okay, they can all help Antony lose at Actium. Historical bird. So my personal crack pairing is just for aesthetics. It is Sin of the Conspirator and Sin of the Poet because I find that hilarious. I'm kind of imagining them screaming out each other's names in the height of passion. Sin of the Poet does not deserve what happens to him. No, he's such an innocent victim. It is an incredible depiction of the horror of the mob. And Sin is a Caesar fan, too. That's what makes it even sadder, that he's going to the funeral. It's very tragic. For his verses. His bad verses, apparently. Yeah, they don't even know he's a bad poet. They call him one which is like the worst. Like, we're gonna kill you and also insult your poetry. Romans are just dicks. So yeah, Sin is squared for no reason other than it's a square. My crack pairing is Caesar and the soothsayer, and I'm sticking by that one. Caesar takes the time to, like, pull him out of the crowd and be like, what did you say? And he says, beware the Ides of March, like, three times. And then Caesar's like, he is a dreamer. Let us leave him. But Portia sees the soothsayer later, and he's going to warn him again. Also, Caesar acknowledges him. He says, it's the Ides of March. And the soothsayer's like, yeah, it still is. (laughs) 
they see each other one more time and it's like, the eyes of March are come. And the soothsayer says, but not gone. And obviously this soothsayer like cares or he wouldn't have bothered to run all the way down and be like, no, look, man, it's still bad. Maybe they had a thing like way back in the day before Caesar was Caesar. I can also see like present to the action of the play Caesar just being like, yeah, I'll bang this oboe. It's fine. This guy's out of left field. Bring him to my palace. Let's have a long conversation with some wine. And Calpurnia is just off there wondering, and you wonder why I don't have kids yet. I know, right? <laughs> Maybe if you stopped banging dudes. Stop wasting your spirit. Or at least do it faster like Antony. Anthony has more spirit to waste. He's got all the spirit. This is the real reason why Rome was pissed at Antony. He was off in Egypt banging Cleopatra instead of back in Rome banging all of them. This is a bunch of jealous bitches, like the whole state of Rome. We'll be back next time with our problematic faves, our ships that we desperately need to sink, and our hate sex pairing of the month. Thanks for listening, guys. This show is produced by us, Julia and Liz, as part of the Adjective Sphinx Network. The music we use is Almain One by John Bull and can be found at museopen.com. Find us and our sibling shows on Twitter at Adjective Sphinx or email us at adjectivesphinx at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes and leave a review. Thanks for listening.